Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith. I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. If you're a regular reader of Ministry Watch's daily journalism or of a listener of these weekly podcasts, you know that we care about integrity, the personal integrity of Christian leaders and the integrity of the processes and procedures in the ministries themselves. We advocate for transparency and accountability as a way of giving Christian donors the chance to make informed giving decisions for themselves. But my guest today, Conley Owens, says that even this is not enough. He suggests that it's not just the prosperity gospel preachers who have crossed the line when it comes to financial integrity. In fact, he makes the case that virtually all evangelical ministries, I should say, including Ministry Watch itself, are engaged in fundraising practices that the Bible prohibits and that Jesus and Paul and the early church leaders would have found reprehensible. He's written a book, about his ideas, and it's called The Dorian Principle, A Biblical Response to the Commercialization of Christianity. And at the end of the program, I'll tell you how to get a copy of the book for yourself absolutely free. But for now, here's my conversation with Conley Owens. He spoke to me from his home office in California. Well, Conley, welcome to the program. I've got to say I found your book, The Dorian Principle, uh, nourishing, in part because you've got a ton of Scripture in it, and I really appreciate that. And um, also, though, I've got to admit, pretty challenging, <laughs> challenging you know, to the evangelical world generally, because, and, and I don't mind that because we do a lot of that here at Ministry Watch, but uh, challenging to me personally and to the way we do things here at Ministry Watch. So, you know, there's an old saying, um, you've quit preaching and you've commenced to meddling, and that there were moments— <laughs> when I jokingly um, sort of remembered that old expression. But all that said, thanks for uh, joining me today. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, Conley, let's start with a few kind of basic principles. Uh, first of all, the name of the book, The Dorian Principle. Where does that come from? What is What does the word Dorian mean? Yeah, in Greek, Dorian is the adverb that means freely. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 8, freely you received, freely give. And Paul also uses this word to speak of his uh, preaching freely or without charge. So the, the question really is, going back to Matthew 10, 8, is how is it the case that ministry should be given freely if in the next couple of verses it says a worker is worthy of his food and in Luke a worker is worthy of his wages. So it's about how do you hold these two things together? The Bible's concerned that ministries be supported. And secondly, the Bible's concerned that the gospel go out free of charge without money and without price, as it says in Isaiah 55.1. And the answer that I offer is simply that Reciprocity is forbidden. Reciprocity being where the gospel is being exchanged for money or some other benefit. And co-labor is commended. Co-labor being where another fellow servant of Christ desiring to support this work is coming alongside you financially or otherwise. And so uh, these two shouldn't be conflated and confused. And that's often what happens when people are thinking about money. You know, instead of recognizing these two polar truths, right, that 
that ministry should be freely given and that the worker's worthy of his food. They kind of settle for some uh, moderating position, some mediating position where, you know, it's, uh, uh, well, they're allowed to take money just as long as it's not too much. You know, that's not really satisfying either pole of the concern. <laughs> so uh, anyway, that in short is the Dorian principle that uh, in the context of gospel proclamation, accepting support as anything other than an act of co-labor compromises the sincerity of ministry. And that's often the Bible's concern about money is that uh, when the gospel is going forward for a price, uh, it's not going forward sincerely. Well, I want to return to that idea, especially that uh, that distinction that you've set up between co-labor and reciprocity in just a minute, because I think that 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 um, model, that dichotomy, that continuum is helpful. It was helpful for me as I read your book, but it's also uh, not obvious and not easy to figure out. But before we return to that, Conley, I want to get you to unpack another Greek word, uh, Dorian. You mentioned Dorian um, being an adverb that means to freely give. Um, There's another word, pro- I'm not. A, I'm not. I'm neither Greek nor Latin scholar, but it's it's uh, pro pimpo. Did I pronounce that right? Pro pimpo. Oh yeah, yeah. I, you know, we're in English. All these all these words are just transliterated to sound good in our American. Right, right. So tell me what that word means. Yeah. So pro pimpo is a verb that means to send out. Uh, you see this used quite a few times throughout the Bible. Uh, however, it comes with the connotation of. Uh, supplying specifically financially. So uh, you see in Titus and elsewhere um, that it's even said, you know, seeing that they lack nothing. And uh, this word is often used by Paul to speak of, for example, the Corinthians supporting him in his journey. Uh, It's used by John to talk about Gaius supporting missionaries. And yet always comes with this subtext of financial support. Well, given what you've said so far, I find very little, and I think most of our listeners, uh, Conley, would find very little with which to disagree. I mean, you know, that's, um, there's, okay, got it, good. Christians should support missionary efforts. Christians shouldn't, um, you know, accept, you know, money for the gospel. We, you, you, in fact, you mentioned uh, Johannes Tietzel, who, um, who was, uh, f- who was famous for the practice, or at least for articulating the practice of indulgences. That that famous couplet. Um, w- what is that famous couplet that he came up with? Whenever <laughs> a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Yeah, exactly, and that, and of course, the the whole Reformation, uh, or mu- many of the energizing activities of the Reformation, were a response to that. For the essentially the selling of the gospel, we you know the selling of indulgences. So, I think um, you know most of us on this side of the Reformation divide, Protestants, Reformed generally, many of our listeners, Reformed generally, would get that. But you go a little bit farther. In fact, you go a lot farther in your book. Uh, you, you say that much of parachurch ministry uh, is being funded in an unbiblical and possibly even an anti-biblical way. And you're not talking about just the prosperity gospel preachers. You're talking about folks that you admire. You admit that you admire, you know, people like Tim Keller. Can you say more about that? Yeah, so— that is that is frequently what you see addressed, right? Is prosperity gospel, you know, they're trying to get their jet, et cetera. Well, what if they weren't 
what if they weren't trying to get a jet? You know, what if it were less than that? What is it at base that distinguishes our practices from their practices? Is it the amount of money? I, I don't think that's it. Is it the fact that they have often a false gospel? I don't believe that's it either, because if that's the case, then it's the false gospel that's the problem, not the not the use of money. Instead, often there is a, a similarity and there's not a whole lot that distinguishes our practices from their practices. Uh, whenever the gospel is being sold, whenever Christian teaching is being sold, uh, we're engaging in that, that same sort of reciprocity. So yeah, the Christian publishing industry, uh, gospel conferences that charge attendees, the way seminaries uh, require tuition from students. These are all examples of uh, religious education that's not being freely given. Well, I, I agree with you, um, Conley, that I find many of these practices questionable or distasteful. Um, but I also wonder what the alternative is. I mean, in a you know, I find wars distasteful as well. And yet in a broken world, I understand that countries need armies and that I don't personally believe that it is a sin for a Christian man to serve in that army, uh, even though fundamentally the need for armies and the possibility of wars is not God's highest and best plan. Um, so, Talk to me about that. I mean, okay, let, you know, given it would be great if, you know, if if God's people supplied all that was needed for God's work in the world, but we live in a broken world and we've got to journey throughout through that world um, despite that brokenness. Respond to that. Talk about that a little bit. Right, sure. So with war, that's why theologians have distinguished between just war and unjust war, and there's just war theory. In the same way, that's what I'm trying to distinguish. What is just receiving and unjust receiving? Or maybe not necessarily unjust so much as just against what God requires. And that's where this distinction between reciprocity and co-labor comes in. Now you say, you know, it'd be ideal if God's people would supply, but they don't supply enough. It, at least that seemed to be what you were implying. I would argue that part of the reason why they don't supply enough is one, because of these practices that keep them from supplying, right? If I have to purchase all my books, right, why would I Why would I fund books? You know, if we have one economy set up, it kind of prevents another economy from flourishing. Conley, let me interrupt you there because I get that. And I, you know, I, I make that same argument often whenever we talk, whenever I talk about, for example, care for the poor, that when the government intervenes, it's, it often sucks all the air out of the room and it prevents the private sector and individuals and, you know, uh, the institutions of civil society, these mediating institutions from actually flourishing and behaving properly. Um, so I, I understand the argument and have even used the argument in a different context. But I guess what I'm wondering here is that what's is this a distinction without a difference? In other words, if I uh, because you you for example affirm the practice of things like Kickstarter campaigns and GoFundMe campaigns, but wh why is that inherently um, different from me buying a book? from an author that I respect or appreciate or donating money 
to a ministry in exchange for a book. In fact, that's a practice that we do here at Ministry Watch often. We call it a donor premium. Give us a gift of any amount during the month of August, for example, and you get a subscription to World Magazine. We do that a lot. Um, You, however, it seems to me, would say, I don't like that practice. That is not a biblical practice. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's that's reciprocal. Right. And so even though, you know, it might be for a very low fee, it might not involve a profit. uh, There is still uh, something that is being exchanged. And I believe that's what precisely what scripture is forbidding. And so there is a distinction in, you know, it might not be easy to see the distinction if you're receiving from the same people that are uh benefiting from your ministry. However, uh, that's not always the case. A lot of times, for example, with missions, you know, these are totally different parties. You know, the church that's supporting is different than the the people that it's being, uh, that are enjoying the church plan, you know, for example. However, often uh, the people that are receiving are the same ones who are giving, and, and that's encouraged in the Bible. But it's important that these people give out of a sensed obligation to God rather than a sensed obligation to man. If they are giving to man, you know, Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 9, you know, as though he were a free agent, that suggests that he's not a servant, that he's not a slave of Christ. And additionally, he makes this analogy to the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. If you consider how they received funds, it wasn't people purchasing things from them. It was people offering to God, recognizing their need to give thanks to God, and then the Levites receiving of the tithes, of the offerings. And to bypass that triangle where people are giving to God, and then God is giving to the priests, him being the Levite's inheritance, him being the inheritance of the priests, then what you have is something idolatrous or blasphemous. This is what Hophni and Phinehas did. And Samuel too, is they bypassed people giving to God and rather took the meat before it was boiled and offered to him. And that's essentially what we're doing when we engage in reciprocity. We're saying, uh, no, don't offer to God and then uh, me receive of that. Rather, uh, give directly to me because I've done this thing for you. Yeah. Well, um, so talk a little bit more about some specific cases, uh, Conley. So, for example, um, a preacher that um, is um, preaching in a church, a guest preacher, you say it's okay for that person to receive an honorarium. It's okay for a pastor to receive a salary. Um, Help me understand what the difference is. Sure. So when uh, people are gathered together in a particular area to start a church, to proclaim the gospel, it's important in ideal situations that one man really, or ideally multiple, would commit themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer, as it says in Acts 6-4. And the way that happens is by either this person, you know, being independently wealthy and kind of sacrificing what they have, or uh, people coming together and sacrificing the fruit of their labors as a corporate body so that uh, this one person can dedicate themselves. And so this is what Paul does, right? At first he's at first he's um, uh, tent making, and then some people from Macedonia visit him in Corinth, and he's able to engage full time in the ministry, the suggestion seeming to be that they're supporting him, right? And so uh, this is this is what's happening for a minister is various people are uh, 
are engaging in that ministry with them, him providing the labor, them providing the funds. And this is this is all co-labor. This is all them working together. Paul, as he lists out his various persecutions, he always lists among those. There's like three different times he does this. He always lists that he had to labor with his own hands. And so when we labor with our own hands and forgo the fruit of our labor so that a minister uh, doesn't have to engage in labor and is able to dedicate himself to the ministry of the word, uh, we are engaging in shared suffering. It truly is partnership. It truly is co-labor. And the same thing applies not just for a pastor, but for a, a visiting preacher, right? Is we're going to help them and work together. Now, if on the other hand, uh, we're not doing this so that the ministry can go forward, the word of God can go forward, doing it so that we can receive some benefit. And that's the motivation. Uh, that's wrong. Now, you might argue that that's something that can't really be discerned that easily. That's true. It can't always be discerned that easily. However, uh, sometimes it can be discerned more easily than others. Sure. Well, no, I, I certainly get that it can be discerned in some situations. I mean, if somebody's using it to buy a private jet or a mansion, you know, it's pretty easy. But but in some cases, it's a whole cloth. You know, the work that I do, for example, here at Ministry Watch um, does benefit me. I mean, I do receive a salary from it. Um, on the other hand, I hope and pray that my word is fruitful for the kingdom of God as well, that, you know, that the work that we do is um, edifying and encouraging to folks. And uh, why do, why does there have to be a dichotomy between those two? Why, why can't it be a both and rather than in either or? Okay, I think I see what you're saying because you're you're mentioning benefit. Yeah, I have I have no problem with uh, pastors benefiting from their ministry and being supported well, not just you know so that they barely have the capabilities to do what they're called to do. Um, uh, it it is important that that ministries be supported well. However, if that is coming through reciprocity, mm -hmm. through an exchange of the gospel for something else. The medium is part of the message, right? And this is a gospel of free grace. As we give that gospel of free grace at a price, uh, we are selling the message. Not only does it compromise our own sincerity, but it compromises God's sincerity as he is the ultimate source of this gospel. Yeah. Well, no, I appreciate that very much, and I uh, mostly agree with you, Conley. Uh, let's look at your book, for example. Um, I, I first heard about you and your book, The Dorian Principle, on a podcast um, that um, is primarily focused on Bible translation. And um, I you know, listened to, I think, three episodes of, of you um, talking uh, you know, on that podcast, and at some point during that um conversation, I realized, oh, I can just request your book on your website. Uh, it's absolutely free. There was no charge. You paid for the book. You paid for the shipping. You paid for everything. And lo and behold, a few days later, I end up with the book in my hand. Are you saying that? And, and I appreciate that, by the way. I appreciate that very much. Um, but are you saying that's the only biblical model for disseminating material? Not exactly. Um, I do think that as ministries engage in uh, in giving things like books, that they should, uh, they should give them freely. And so, for example, um, the way I say this in the book is that the gospel and anything that directly attends to the gospel should be offered freely. Uh, the way that historically this has been discussed 
uh, going all the way back at least to Peter Lombard, is that spiritual things and anything annexed to spiritual things ought to be given freely. Uh, so I do believe that's the case. But the way books used to work uh, prior to the um, prior to the mid 18th century, uh, before there was copyright and royalties, essentially the author was not making money off the book. They might put a dedication at the beginning of the book. And then from that, you know, the Duke or whoever they're dedicating this book to would uh, supply them and so they could continue uh, writing. However, basically you had a, a hard distinction between the author and the secular publisher, right? And so this author just wants to get his word out there. The publisher is going to pick up on whatever he can and print whatever he can that's going to make him money. And so like, for example, if someone were to put up something uh, print on demand to create space, you know, I don't, I don't see any problem with that. And then, you know, people could pay, but they'd be paying create space, right? Like they'd be paying uh, Amazon or whoever to print this book and ship it to them. They wouldn't be paying, the ministry. And so I, I think it's important to have a distinction between uh, some kind of secular entity that would handle such distribution of some kind of physical good versus the ministry where there'd be no um, no reciprocity involved. Yep. Uh, let me pivot a little bit in our conversation. I, we, we don't have an unlimited amount of time, Conley, to talk about these issues. And I got to tell you, I could probably talk for hours and hours about this stuff because this is kind of in my wheelhouse in terms of what we what we do. Um, and I want to I want to come back to the way we deal with this issue later. And it's different than the way you deal with it. But, but and, and I really that's one of the reasons why I found your book super challenging and I'm really appreciative of it. But 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 before I get there, <laughs> before we sort of land this airplane, uh, l- let me ask you another question you um and it's about support raising the practice that is super common in the evangelical world of support raising I and mean, if you look at the largest christian parachurch ministries in the country uh with rare with probably the largest is world vision and i and you know they do a child sponsorship thing and they do other they do a, a bunch of different kinds of fundraising i don't think that they do that support raising is a huge part of their model but if you go be, below world vision and below compassion international you quickly come to a lot of parachurch ministries like crew campus crusade for christ intervarsity christian fellowship um Virtually all of the missions organizations, um, uh, virtually all of the Bible translation organizations, uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators, SIM, um, you know, the list just goes on and on and on and on. Um, uh, we're talking about in the aggregate tens of billions of dollars raised from people raising their own support. Do you find that practice in compliance with the Dorian principle or out of compliance with the Dorian principle? Uh, raising their own support. So, yeah, I think certainly think there are different ethics that regulate biblical fundraising. This isn't the only ethic. So there are there are certain things I find distasteful uh, about <laughs> about some of the way support raising is done. But in general, as far as the Dorian principle goes, you know, as long as it's co-labor and you're not selling anything, uh, that's fine. How you mentioned Bible translations, though, uh, that's a good example of something being sold, and that's what happens with these parachurch ministries. Because in church ministry, you've got the weekly giving of the saints. You have a whole uh, support model that doesn't require any kind of creativity that would end up violating this ethic. But uh, for, for example, Bible translations. How do they fund this? Well, they lock down the translation with copyright, and they require funds in order to use it in any significant capacity, or to print it, or or purchases. And so, this is how they end up funding this. 
if we were to shift more to a healthier relationship between church and parachurch and the church administer more of these ministries, what you would find is you wouldn't have such a need for creativity that ends up violating this, this ethic. So uh, the bottom line, it seems to me that what you're advocating for is that the church um, be front and center, that the church have more of a, a, an authority and a leadership role in this process, and that in, you know, in the in a perfect world or a near perfect world, given given that we still live in a broken world, but in a world that is much more in compliance with the Dorian principle and other biblical standards of, of fundraising, um, the need for parachurch ministries would all but disappear. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I would think so. And this is not I'm not saying that this is the only solution to the issues that we face. I just do believe that this is one area where the modern church has grown a little unhealthy and that uh, there could be some course correction that would that would solve issues in several areas, including this one of ministry fundraising. Well, just for the record, uh, Conley, uh, you know, here at Ministry Watch, you know, we care about these issues and, you know, we write about them a lot. I think our position is that we believe that— um, what what we try to bring is transparency and accountability, and I would be the first to um, to agree with you that when we've got um, accountability that has been compromised and distributed through all of these thousands, in fact, now more than a million parachurch ministries uh, in the country, that um, just demanding transparency and accountability is probably in and of itself inadequate uh, to deal with the problem. But nonetheless, that's the lane that we operate in. In other words, we don't we don't say to an organization, um, you know, that a million dollars is too much to pay your CEO or seven million dollars in the case, for example, of the Inspiration Network, David Cirillo at the Inspiration Network. But we do say is that donors should know that donors should have that information and should be in a position to make to freely make the decisions. Uh, you're taking it one step further, though, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, I don't have that much to say about transparency other than I do believe that if people were to follow this co-labor model as opposed to reciprocity, you do have some transparency built into that. In that, uh, if ministry is being supported through sales, you just don't have much accountability, right? A ministry is as well off as it is successful. And and there's no there's no accountability. There's no one thinking, hmm, should I pull my funding? Right. When I when I purchase a book, I don't pray for the author. I don't, uh, you know, uh, think that I should, you know, hold him accountable or anything like that. When I give to a ministry, you know, I feel responsible for investigating whether or not they're truly being faithful, uh, praying for them, uh, that sort of thing. In addition, it's, you know, joyful to invest in in such things. But when we're engaged in this reciprocity uh, commercial model, uh, that accountability and prayer, those kinds of things just don't exist. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, Conley, we could talk about these issues all day long, and, and we should. I mean, we, we didn't—you've got an appendix in your book about copyright law and about the uh, open sourcing, which is a topic that, as you've already alluded, is important in the Bible translation world. But, but um, it's important in all areas of Christian publishing. In fact, your book is—if I'm not mistaken, you correct me if I'm wrong—is published under an open source license. Is that, is that accurate? 
Uh, right. So it's uh, under a public domain dedication, which is beyond an open source license. So explain that. Tell me what that means. Yeah. So uh, the law differs in different countries, but typically after a period of time, something enters the public domain and there's no copyright. Everyone's allowed to use it. But in most countries, you're able to uh, just declare that your work is public domain and people can already use it. Some countries don't let you do that. And so uh, what I use also has a fallback license in the event that you're in a country where you can't where you can't uh, just declare your work to be public domain. So yeah, anybody can take my book, anybody can translate it. You don't have to ask me for permission. Uh, you could even modify it if you wanted to uh, in other ways, you know, just chop up the chapters, et cetera. Um, you know, plagiarism is still an issue, but honestly, I don't believe copyright is the solution for that. You know, there are defamation laws and other things that I think are more applicable to yeah. concerns around plagiarism just as well as, you know, accountability in the academic community and things like that. Well, Conley, thanks for explaining that. And it's, I mean, that's a very, very short <laughs> explanation of a very, very big topic that maybe we'll have you back on the program to talk about it some of the day. That's kind of what drove me to write this book in the first place is actually my interest in copyright. That's kind of my day job and been my interest for a long time. Right, right. Well, I respect and appreciate the Dorian principle a great deal, the book and the idea. It's like, as I said earlier, um, it, it has challenged my thinking. I'm not sure that it is yet fully convinced me to, you know, to change the way um, we do business here. But I can promise you that it has certainly um, opened my mind and heart to the possibility that change might be necessary. And, um, and I'm grateful for that. And I also have a tremendous amount of respect for you and the fact that you've kind of put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, and, uh, you, you know, published your book as a public domain book and, uh, that you're giving it away freely. I'm, I'm, I'm a recipient of it. So thank you again. And thanks for being on the podcast today. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, before we close up, do you mind if I go through a few verses? I feel like I've been pretty light on on quotations here, and maybe it would help some of the listeners. Yeah, I think that I think actually I, I appreciate you saying that, Conley, because as I said at the very beginning, one of the things that I really respect and appreciate about your book is that this a lot of this stuff is not just your opinion. That you 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 go back to scripture, and um, it kind of. <laughs> It makes it hard to uh, to do an end run around it because you've got some pretty clear scripture. So, yeah, please feel free to share some scripture with us. Right. Yeah, this is not what I'm arguing against is an exercise in pragmatism. So if anyone hears me as saying, you know, I think this would work out best. Uh, I do think this would work out best, but that's not why I'm proposing this this dichotomy between reciprocity and co-labor. It's because I believe that's what scripture is offering. So uh, just one example of that. Third uh, John 7 and 8 says, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, not accepting anything from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to be supporter of people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So there you have John instructing the elder Gaius which missionaries he should support. Which ones should he support? It's the ones who have not engaged in reciprocity. They have not taken from the Gentiles, those to whom they were sent. Therefore, it is right that, that he should engage in co-labor. He should give to them so that they are, they are well supported. Second uh, Corinthians two seventeen for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Um, there are a lot of people who interpret peddling as referring to corrupting the word, but I do think it, uh, my uh, my understanding of this is that it's referring to selling. And as you look forward in Second uh, Corinthians eleven, it becomes clear that that is what Paul is contending with. He's contending with the people who are preaching for money.
and just one last verse. There are tons of relevant verses. If you check the scripture index in the back of the book, you know, I really do think I've, I've hit on a lot of important texts. Um, but just one last verse, Micah 3.11, its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So here you have in ancient Israel, the heads of the of the nation, the priests, the prophets, uh, all doing their offices for money. And these offices, these are the three offices of Christ. The heads are essentially the princes or the king would count as one of these heads. Uh, prophet, priest, and king doing their offices for a price. And we, under Christ, being a royal priesthood who are charged with speaking prophetically, uh, it is important that we model the that ministry of Christ, that he is in being the perfect prophet, priest, and king, offering his gospel freely without money and without price, that we not be as these Old Testament prophet, priests, and kings uh, doing so for a price, but rather doing so uh, freely and without charge. Well, Conley Owens, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. As I said uh, earlier, a, a very um, challenging word, and I'm grateful for it. And um, yeah, let's um, let's talk again. Sounds good. Thank you. That brings to a close this episode of the Ministry Watch Extra podcast. As I said at the top of the program, you can get your own copy of Conley's book, The Dorian Principle, and make your own judgment about whether you think what he's saying applies to the Christian church today. You can get the book by going to thedorianprinciple.org. Dorian is spelled D-O-R-E-A-N. So again, that's www.thedorianprinciple.org. And as I also said near the top of the program, I do not remain fully convinced by Conley's argument. I can say, for example, that I do consider you my listener. And those of you who are donors to Ministry Watch, in fact, to be my co-laborer in this process. The relationship we have is not merely transactional or one of reciprocity, which Conley Owens decries and says is unbiblical. I think in important ways, the relationship Ministry Watch has with readers, listeners, and donors, in fact, to be consistent with the biblical message that Conley Owens has articulated in the Dorian Principle. That said, I think this conversation is important. It's worth having. And I pray that we will all, including me, uh, be open enough and humble enough to receive correction. I want to be teachable on this point, and that's why I'm delighted to bring this important conversation to you and hope you were nourished by it as well. The producer for today's program are Rich Rosel and Jeff McIntosh. We get database technical and editorial support from Stephen DeBerry, Christina Darnell, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Sutton. You've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. I'm Warren Smith. Until next time, may God bless you.